How does it feel? Yeah, that song's going to be in your head all day today. Sorry. April 13th, 2022. The inspiration, the language of emotion. Language shows us that naming an experience doesn't give the experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and meaning. Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart. I know it's not a big sell to tell writers how important language is, but during a recent read of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, I realized that the ability to understand and relay emotions is deeply vital to what we do. In the end, storytelling is all about emotion. It gives us meaning and empathy and an access point to each other. Emotion is how we connect with each other and our stories. So having language that can deftly navigate that space is essential to good writing. We go to stories to feel. So writers need to know how feelings work. The Fat Orange Cat. How does it feel? In your writing today, go deep into how one of your characters feels. Go beyond mad, sad, glad. How do they feel? Are they frustrated, overwhelmed, melancholy, nostalgic, in a rage? How does that emotion present in their body? What senses are activated? Are any dulled? Spend as much time as you can in that feeling and emotion. You may not use all the words you write in your final scene, but you'll definitely use what you learn. The trope, the Pyrrhic victory. One of my favorite tropes is the Pyrrhic victory, where a character fights tooth and nail for something they desperately want, only to win and discover that it came at too great a cost. This runs along the lines of be careful what you wish for and was it worth it? My favorite Pyrrhic victories are the ones where it was worth it, but not by a huge margin. The contradictory emotions that go along with the Pyrrhic victory create such complex emotions in both the characters and the readers that, when balanced well, it's one of the most powerful narrative experiences available. Some examples of Pyrrhic victories in stories, without spoilers, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, The Lord of the Rings, pretty much every storyline in Game of Thrones, The Hunger Games. The question. Give up? How do you know when to abandon a story that isn't gelling? When is it time to cut your losses and just start something new? Maybe done. Dear, maybe done. I've always believed that the clock starts ticking the moment you start a story, and if you don't get it done before the bell rings, you will never get it done. For what it's worth, I think the bell takes years to ring, but once it has, you as a writer have changed too much to probably make much of anything out of what you've got. I've had this experience a few times, and I'm about to go back into a book I started when I was a way different person from who I am now. Will it work? I don't know. But the decision to give it up is a big one, and unfortunately, I can't tell you how you know it's the right choice. There's the sunk cost fallacy. I've put this much energy slash time slash money into this thing. I have to keep going until I get something for my investment. And I think that is often what keeps us working on stories we should let go. In the end, I think it's a lot like ending a relationship. You just know when it's over. You can find reasons to justify it, but in the end, I think it's a gut feeling. When sticking with it takes more out of you than letting go, it's time to let go. Good luck. The practical. If you gaze into the X-Files, the X-Files also gazes into you.
I remember when I first watched The X-Files, I think it was during season three when it was getting really good. I was completely on board for all of it until about season seven, after which it went off the rails. I did a full rewatch in the mid-aughts right after it ended, but I haven't touched it since. Ian and I are watching it now, from the beginning, skipping only the episodes we remember being pretty bad, so it's a curated watch, but still. Wow. I know the better episodes are coming, but some of the stuff we're watching now is just ridiculous. Mulder is such a drama queen, and Scully is amazing, but she puts up with way too much of Mulder's bullshit. Then there's the whole she's dead, she's alive, she's back, she's gone, she's not really her that is Mulder's sister, Samantha, and oh my god. Ian and I keep looking at each other and laughing and say, did we really buy this when it aired? Oh yes, we did. Hook, line, sinker. I notice when I go back to old stories that they tend to fall into two broad categories for me, those that remain as powerful as they were on the first watch, and those that present like the pictures of that old boyfriend with the flock of seagulls haircut. You can see how he was cute, but how did you ever take that hair seriously? The stories that remain powerful are great, but the flock of seagulls are also fun. They manage to freeze a particular fashion in time, and we change around it. Revisiting gives us as much a window into ourselves at that time as it does into the story itself. And it's a lot of fun. The Inevitable Consequence of Love Grief, Trauma, COVID, and Sacred Duty It's a light week. April 16th, 2022 Dear writer, I drove 14 hours there and back to Tucson last week. I don't hate flying, but there's something about driving that gives me a chance to think and reflect. There's nothing to do but be where I am and sit with myself, and I find it to be a meditative practice. And since I don't meditate on regular days, it's a goal, but I struggle. Then road trips tend to be my source. Going to Tucson to be there with my kid's dad as his father died was a big thing. My father-in-law was a father to me, and while I was there with my kid's dad, I was focused on getting him through this experience. It was his first parent to die, and I'd been through it with both of mine. The drive there and back, however, was about me. I cried for much of the way, so much that I had to stop and trade my contacts out for my glasses because they'd become too cloudy to see the road. As I drove, I listened to Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, which maps out dozens of emotions in detail. It was a book that I knew I would buy as soon as it came out, because I buy all of Brene Brown's books, but I didn't realize how incredibly valuable it was until I was by myself, with no one's emotions to attend to but my own. In the book, Brown talks about how typically people can only name three emotions, mad, sad, and glad. Obviously, there are many more emotions than that, and our ability to deal with our emotions is hampered if we can't use language to name them and understand them. When she got to the chapter on grief, she talked about loss, longing, and feeling lost, and how these are central concepts to grief. Grief never ends, as long as the lost thing is lost, and lost is often a permanent situation. Our grief for it will continue. My father-in-law's impending death had me feeling a great deal of grief, but as I tried to examine that grief as Brown instructed, I realized it was also mixed with an intense gratitude. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not that kind of person. When someone says, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened, I want to punch them square in the face. I have absolutely no time for that kind of toxically positive foolishness. Things suck and things hurt, and my father-in-law is one of the best people I've ever known, and his loss is a big one, both to me personally and the world in general. 
That said, mixed in with my grief was a gratitude so intense I almost didn't know what to do with it. This man had given me parental love when I had none. He'd given me my kid's dad, who was precious to me. And because of my kid's dad, he gave me my kids. He was brilliant and kind and funny and humble and loving, and I'm so grateful that I got to be a part of his family. That gift is one I will never take lightly. Grief is loss, but it's not just loss. It's a complicated mass of things that all originate with love. I've heard grief defined as love that doesn't have anywhere to go. And while that doesn't feel quite right to me, as my love still goes to my father-in-law, whether he's here or not, it feels closer to the mark. Grief is the inevitable consequence of love. Grief and love are partners in this game. You cannot have one without the other. If we did not love, we won't grieve. When we love anyone or anything, the loss of that person, animal, precious object will cause some level of grief. It's just how it is. It's heartbreaking and infuriating, but also beautiful and meaningful. The last six years or so have been so full of grief, both for me personally and for pretty much everyone. I'm not a big fan of sweeping statements, but COVID took from everyone. If it didn't take someone you loved, it took your freedom to leave the house without calculating your risk of death. Maybe it took your job. Maybe you got it and recovered and you're still not the same. Maybe you got it and recovered and are fine, but your sense of your own personal safety was threatened and that results in some level of trauma. Even for those of us who are seeing therapists regularly, processing all of this stuff takes time and energy that many of us just don't have. We just keep going, dragging our traumatized minds and bodies through the day, wondering why we can't do it all the way we used to. We can't because trauma. But here's the thing. If you didn't know about storytelling's power to heal before this, you should now. If you weave grief and loss and trauma into a story and someone who doesn't have the resources, financial, emotional, or otherwise, to process their trauma reads your story, then your story has just healed them a little. And if that isn't enough reason to get writing right now, then I don't know what is. I don't care how silly or fluffy you think your work is. Someone out there needs it. It's a sacred calling and it matters all of it. Humans are machines that create meaning and stories are how we do it. We grow through meaning, we heal through meaning, and we need our storytellers. So when you can, get to writing. We need you. Everything, Al. Al.